coming at you from the Hooters over in Princeton, New Jersey. This is the Pass Ball Show brought to you, of course, by JohnPLE.com. Apologize for not going live. This is obviously on tape delay, but we're happy to say that we've done this show from the Hooters over in Princeton, New Jersey, where next Thursday uh, we got the MTR Draft Party. A ton of stuff going on with that. Something that's definitely going to be exciting for all of you listeners from 5 to 7 next Thursday. We'll be doing the Pass Ball Show like always, and then from 7 until maybe 11 o'clock, we're going to do live NFL draft coverage from all our personalities at MTR Radio, Joey Baboots, Mike Sanfilippo, Bill Zeltman, uh, the whole thing. You get a lot of other personalities in there. Be sure to stop by. Hooters is going to have some great uh, great specials and stuff like that. Well, hopefully you guys come up, fill up the place, uh, make us feel welcome, and of course be part of our program in which we have 24-7 right here on MTR Radio. But, you know, as, as we're jumping in, we want to kind of get right into things. Uh, some things have happened this past week. We're going to touch a little bit on the Mets, a little bit on the Yankees, a little bit on the Philadelphia Phillies. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about the Jackie Robinson movie, which was something that I, I really enjoyed. And I'll tell you why that I kind of I kind of liked it. There was maybe a couple fallacies in there, but I thought it was a very good movie. But let's get going. The Mets this past week, unfortunately, uh, were hit the Colorado Rockies, some bad weather. The situation all in Colorado was just not conducive to what could could be made as good baseball. You start out with the snow out. Uh, you got Coors Field, the humidor, the, the, the high altitude and everything. And it didn't work out in the Mets' favor as they went in there and they got swept in a, what would have been a four-game uh, four series. Turns out to be a three-game series because of the snow out. And it just didn't work out the Mets' way. Uh, obviously, some faulty starting pitching. Guys like Dylan G not getting the job done. Uh, Ruben Tejada. That's what we're going to start out with. Ruben Tejada, shortstop for the Mets. And obviously, a lot of people have shown their their uh, their passion, their love for Ruben Tejada. But the problem I have here is the comparison that has been made all along that Ruben Tejada is going to be the next Jose Reyes. He's going to be better than Jose Reyes. And as you move forward, there's not going to be any issues or anything to worry about in regards to the shortstop position for the New York Mets. And the reason why there isn't right now is there is nobody that's challenging Ruben Tejada. There is nobody in the Mets organization that you could say if Ruben Tejada struggles, gets hurt, that there's somebody that's going to come in there and admirably fill up the position. Ruben Tejada right now has gotten that kind of mantra as a guy that is not very very uh, loud spoken. He's quiet almost to a point where some people could say he might be a little bit on the lazy side, but he makes the error that cost the Mets this game. And I'll tell you, you know, you got to start holding this guy accountable and fans may take a little while. They may not want to do it right away. Some time may go by, but the question I have is how many errors is this guy going to make before you start to panic and you start to say that this guy may or may not be able to get the job done. Uh, two outs, bottom of the ninth, Bobby Parnell gets a ground ball. He throws the ball in the right field, not only allows the Rockies to tie the game, but absolutely blows the save for Bobby Parnell. The Rockies win in the bottom of the 10th inning, and unfortunately for the Mets, they don't get the job done. They lose all three games to Colorado. Is it time to panic? No, but I do think there's some things that have to be looked at. Number one is Tejada. I think you have to watch him, maybe, maybe monitor him a little bit, maybe look outside the organization to maybe get a vet 
veteran in here somehow to possibly get the job done and be able to fill in for Tejada and start two, three games at a time if Ruben is not getting the job done. The other problem, let's be honest, is the depth in the starting pitching. You could criticize depth with the New York Mets organization in a lot of spots. I don't blame the lack of depth in starting pitching completely on Sandy Alderson because coming into the season, you start out with Johan Santana, you sign Sean Markham, and both of these guys are out. Obviously, Santana for the season. Markham, you don't know when you're going to see back. So your sixth and seventh starters end up having to jump into rotation and play pretty prominent roles. Not only that, but Dylan G, who essentially is a fourth or fifth starter, and in my opinion, a good one, has to jump in and be that number three starter and get the matchups against Cliff Lee and get the matchups against very good number three starters throughout the National League. And I think that's a hard that's a hard time to sell. To me, I have a hard time buying Dylan G being a number three starter. I could take him as a number four or five, but not as a number three. And that's unfortunately something the Mets have to deal with right now. Now you got Jeremy Hefner and you got Aaron Laffey filling out your rotation. At Listen, the, those are guys, in my opinion, Laffey is probably another start or two away from being out all again. And Hefner is going to hold a spot until you can get a capable arm in there. And that's going to take us to the what, what the conversation you would expect it to get to when does Zach Wheeler come up. And that's something that you know we've talked about before. Uh, you may want to wait till May 1st to get that extra year of, el- of eligibility for arbitration. But when Zach Wheeler as an option becomes better, not not totally with his upside, but Zach Wheeler as constructed becomes a better option than what you have right now in your fourth or fifth spots in your starting rotation. I do think this is something that should be considered a little more than it is right now. And the unfortunate thing is, I don't know if the Mets are really going in that direction. May 1st comes, will we see Zach Wheeler? Odds are you will not. But a guy, a guy that certainly should be part of the Mets rotation within the first half of the season as opposed to last Last year, what the Mets did with Matt Harvey bringing him up, you know, in August, I, I think that Zach Wheeler will be up here pretty soon. And you add Sean Markham to the mix, and all of a sudden, the Mets starting rotation doesn't look so bad. The Mets, as they come through, they got the Washington Nationals, a very big series coming up while, while they play uh, the top three pitchers in the in Washington Nationals rotation with Steven Strasburg, Gio Gonzalez, Jordan Zimmerman. And we'll see how the Mets do there. But the thing is, the depth in the Mets rotation which some people may say is starting to be a little bit alarming. I think the reinforcements are on their way. Hopefully we'll get some good news on Sean Markham and get Wheeler up here. And all of a sudden the Mets rotation with Harvey, who has pitched phenomenal to start this season with Jonathan Neese and Dylan G. And then you put Wheeler and Markham in there who are both both have an upside to be better than Dylan G makes them at starting rotation more of the asset that the, you know coming into the season Met fans and people that covered the team thought it would be. The one thing that has been a surprise for the Mets is their ability to score runs and this is something that we thought was going to be a problem if you follow the second half of the 2012 season you'll realize that that was the absolute weakness. You couldn't get the team to score a run for about a month and a half in the second half of last season. So the fact that they've come out like gangbusters. John Buck is hitting like Mike Piazza right now. Lucas Duda is hitting for some power and they've gotten some production in places that you wouldn't expect them to. One guy that's got off to a very good start that I am totally buying into is Daniel Murphy. 
And you could talk about John Buck and his, you know, however many home runs he has, leading the league in RBIs and all, all that stuff. Lucas Duda leading the league in OPS+. Plus. Uh, yes, those are good stories. I don't think those guys can maintain that for a course of a 162-game season. And that's where I run into little problems in totally drinking that Kool-Aid. But I will take some with Daniel Murphy because I do see a transition. I, I don't just see good numbers and say, hey, he's off to a good start. I see Daniel Murphy going out there, hitting the ball with a lot more confidence than I've ever seen him. And if you remember with the stuff that's gone on with Dave Hudgens taking over as the hitting coach and his philosophy and what he stands for is take pitches, work counts, work the pitcher, get deep into the counts, get the starting pitcher out of the game. Daniel Murphy took it and he took it too hard. He said, listen, I'm going to take as many pitches as possible. And you saw pretty much what you've seen from Lucas Duda this year is the ability to get deep in account, but that one pitch that you get in every one of your at-bats to take it right down the middle just to work the count. And that's not what, you, what David Hudgens is trying to teach. He's trying to run deeper counts. He's trying to draw some walks. He's trying to work the high on-base percentage thing. But Daniel Murphy last year, and I think you saw a very prominent last year was kind of uh, feeding too much into that and maybe missing pitches that in in the past he would have swung and driven and he has done that this year you could tell particularly with two strikes he's a lot more confident he's willing to drive the ball and if you look through throughout his at bats you see him swinging at pitches that are strikes instead of taking a pitch to get deeper in the strike zone I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that Daniel Murphy can get back to what we saw a couple years ago when he was hitting 320 because he has that ability he is that natural of a hitter that the average should be up there and he's starting to do the right things as far as hitting pitches that are in the strike zone as opposed to just looking to work a count if you get a fastball right down the middle on your first pitch and there's a couple guys on base you damn well should swing at it and Dave Hudgens isn't saying take that pitch every single time so I, I do think there's a little bit of connection there I think Daniel Murphy is in the right uh, is is going in the right direction and I could see him maintaining his offensive prowess that that he has started at the beginning of this season. As far as Lucas Duda, I think Lucas Duda has probably the poster child for what Dave Hudgens is trying to, to preach. The the fact that, you know, he sees less pitches than any, I'm sorry, more pitches than anybody in Major League Baseball, and that includes Joey Votto. He doesn't swing at very many pitches. Obviously, a lot of pitchers want to pitch around Joey Votto, so he's getting a lot more selective. But Lucas Duda doesn't swing at a lot of pitches, and you've seen a lot in a couple different scenarios where there's been that 2-0, 3-1 pitch right down the middle in his wheelhouse that he has taken and and I do think that there should be a development, a movement in the right direction when it comes to, to Lucas Duda being a, more of a significant power hitter. And I, I think that's going to be part of the transition once he makes that adjustment and he starts eyeing in on that 2-0-3-1 pitch and drives the ball where he needs to, that's going to be a big step for Lucas Duda becoming a premium power hitter and overall making the Mets outfield a lot more productive than we have seen you know, through spring training, through last offseason, through the prior season when we have said that this Mets outfield is not major league caliber. So I do give the Mets you know, credit for that. Very good start to the offense of side of the ball. 
I, I don't know what to expect out of the, the rotation up until they get Markham and Wheeler in there. Obviously, Matt Harvey has been phenomenal. I think those are things that all have to be considered. But, you know, the Mets, as they, as they leave Colorado, they got to be happy to do that. It has not necessarily been a good spot, a good situation for them to be in. They, they've, they've had some bad times there. They've had some bad times playing the Rockies in general. It's just a uniform, maybe, that has kind of been a curse to the New York Mets over the last couple seasons. But I think they'll be happy to leave Colorado, move on. I know they got a big homestand here where they play the Nationals, they play the Dodgers, they play the Phillies. All three teams are, are, are playoff caliber teams. And I think it's very anxious as a fan or a person that covers the team to see where they stand, to see where they uh, can compete against teams like that. They're going to have to win some games if they want to not be a 63 and 90, uh, 90 and uh, I'm sorry, uh, what it was 92 or 93 win team. I, I don't, I don't, I'm sorry, 69 and 93, like I predicted them. If they're going to be a team that's going to be better than that, they're going to have to win some games against teams that on paper may be better than them. And I think those are things that have to be considered and looked at and I do think it's a wise situation for the New York Mets to go that go in that route but moving on you obviously got the New York Yankees and you know they've gotten off to a surprising start not necessarily out like gangbusters not necessarily tearing you know tearing the league up and I don't think anybody anticipated this but I do think they've played better than people have expected and you look at the New York Yankees and I think one of the things that you know certainly can be looked at is the fact that they're they're little guys the guys that Brian Cashman has brought in to help have all exceeded expectations from Kevin Euclid to Vernon Wells to Travis Hafner. To me, uh, I, I said all along that Vernon Wells was going to be a good addition to some team. And I, I went back and forth with some people on Twitter, uh, you know, in regards to the Yankees adding Vernon Wells. And this was this was a couple months before the Yankees ended up making the trade. And I said that he would be a perfect fit in the Yankee stadium, a right-handed batter where you yeah, you were scheduled to start three lefties. Remember at the time, Curtis Granderson was healthy. You had Ichiro and you have Brett Gardner, which you still have. But the Mets, the Yankees were scheduled to have a le- all left-hand hitting outfield. And I thought a guy like Vernon Wells, who still has some power at his age, can go over there and be an asset filling in in either of the corner outfielders at, at spots and then doing some DH. I thought it would be great for him. And sure enough, the Yankees eventually make the trade. They bring in Vernon Wells. And I'm going to tell you this. Vernon Wells is going to continue to produce for the Yankees. He is going to put up 20-25 home runs this year. He's going to drive in some runs. The, the Yankees' flexibility that they have in the outfield to be able to DH him against some lefties He's going to give you a lot more than you got from Andrew Jones last year. You know, all you got to do is look at Jones's numbers. They were they were pathetic towards the second half of last season. Yes, he got a couple big hits in his couple years with the Yankees, but Vernon Wells has a lot more to offer than what Andrew Jones did over the last couple seasons with the New York Yankees. So, I think Vernon Wells is going to be an absolute uh, coup for the Yankees. Yes, they're going to have to pay a lot more this year on his contract than they are next year, which certainly helps them in their. Uh, in interest in staying under the $189 million luxury tax threshold. But mark my words, I've said this before, two months ago, three months ago, I said this, and I'm going to stay with it. Vernon Wells is going to be an asset to the New York Yankees. By the end of the season, 
all Yankee fans are going to be on the Vernon Wells bandwagon saying this guy is all right, and I'm going to start playing some clips and retweeting some tweets about this guy being so terrible and pathetic and not being able to handle it in New York even before he, he became a New York Yankee. Just remember the stadium that the Yankees play in and remember the fact that Vernon Wells has something left. Is he going to be the guy that's going to go out there and hit 35 home runs? Is he the guy that earned that ridiculous contract that he signed with the Toronto Blue Jays before they ended up sending him to the Los Angeles Angels? No. But he's a productive hitter. He's a power hitter. He's going to hit his share of home runs. He can hit the ball the other way in addition to jerk his share of home runs to left field. He's, he's going to ride some balls in, into the jet stream in the right field and hit a couple home runs for the Yankees that way. So I think Vernon Wells is going to be the biggest acquisition that the Yankees have made this past offseason. So I give him credit for, for making that move, and I'm going to continue to be proven right on this situation. But moving on, you saw a couple uh, couple interesting topics going on in Major League Baseball. If you followed last night or the night before, you saw the pitching matchup between the Seattle Mariners and the Detroit Tigers, and it didn't involve Justin Verlander, but it did involve King Felix, who went up there against Max Scherzer, and they essentially went toe-to-toe, both throwing eight solid innings, both getting 12 strikeouts, and that was the kind of game that, as a baseball fan, and you wanted to see two stud pitchers at the top of their game, it was something certainly enjoyable to see and fun to watch. These guys went out there and dominated the opposition's lineup, and and Scherzer is a guy who's very underrated. He had well over 200 strikeouts last year. He kind of hides in a Detroit rotation that has... um, of course, Verlander and uh, Doug Fister and uh, Annabelle Sanchez. So Scherzer doesn't kind of stand out as as dominant of a pitcher he is. But outside of Verlander, he is one of the more dominating right-hand pitchers in all of the American League that nobody talks about. So it was great to see the two of them kind of going toe-to-toe, getting their strikeouts, manning the lineups like like they possibly could. So I, I, I enjoy seeing stuff like that. You got guys like Kershaw. You got guys like, you know, hopefully more from Lincecum. And, and, you know, ace type of pitchers, you like to see them go out there and go toe-to-toe with each other, like a Cole Hamels and a Matt Harvey. You'd like to see something like that where they pitch to the to capability of a Hernandez and a Scherzer in a matchup like you saw right there. And we're going to move on, and we're going to talk about Ryan Braun right now. And Ryan Braun, listen, he, he's a guy who, in my opinion, just – is 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 a is a villain. I'm looking at this guy as a villain. Ever since he got busted for a 50 game suspension that he ended up having overturned through the appeal process, which I thought was an absolute joke. I've said it a million times. Ryan Braun is using performance enhancing drugs in some way, shape, or form. And all you gotta do is point to the guy's start this year where he can't seem to hit a fastball. And you know what? The guy goes out there and acts as cocky and as arrogant as he did, like he's like like he he was so so wrongfully accused of doing something that he obviously was doing and he he deserves to be under the microscope he is deserves to be treated like a guy that has to prove that he was not using performance enhancing drugs the year that he had last year was a certain step in the right direction for him because he had it back up the MVP season that he had the year before and then and then getting busted for PEDs in that following off season you know if he was clean then he'd be able to back up the numbers in 2012 and he did it but then he gets mentioned in the biogenesis thing and he denies that you know as cavalier and as cocky as he did when he was busted for 50 games in a prior offseason 
he has got to go out there and produce. He's got to go out there and be the Ryan Braun that hits 30-plus home runs, drives in well over 100 runs, and hits 320. He has to be that hitter. And, and the fact that he's off to a bad start, yes, he should be under more of a microscope than other players that just simply get off to a bad start. Because if he goes out there and struggles to hit 220 and struggles to hit home runs like he has in the past, the correlation between that and not using performance enhancing drugs is going to be maximized it's going to be more obvious and and listen guys like me are never going to let off of the fact that ryan braun is a performance enhancing drug user and and listen is he does he stand out is he the only one of course not is there plenty of players in the game of major league baseball that have used drugs that are never going to get caught or suspected of be uh, of using yes i agree with that but the bottom line is Ryan Braun is a performance-enhancing drug user, and even though he may never admit it, I would like to see the guy go down for something that he is obviously doing. But moving on, you got the Chicago Cubs, and I'm going to go all the way around baseball. We'll touch on the Phillies in a little bit. Of course, we're going to talk about the Jackie Robinson movie up until we finish up here and remind you over at the Hooters in Princeton, New Jersey, we'll be here live next Thursday from 5 to 11. You're going to have me, John Pielli, past ball show for the first couple hours, and then your MTR radio personalities are going to take over um, within the second hour and the third hour and give you live NFL draft coverage. You're going to have uh, Apple appetizers, specials, everything over there that the Hooters of Princeton, New Jersey uh, offers. So we look forward to uh, to definitely catching that stuff out. But, you know, moving on a little bit, the Chicago Cubs are doing some renovations to Wrigley Field. And I did think that this was something that kind of had to be done. And you you talk about the baseball uh, purists, the baseball uh, historians, the ones that love the game and they don't want to see anything change and they love the fact that Wrigley Field and Fenway Park have been standing in continuous baseball stadiums for over 100 years and and all their place in baseball history but when do you get to a point where you've got to sacrifice history for safety you know, let's be honest. I mean, you go back to the Baker Bowl, uh, which was one of the poorly kept ballparks where the Philadelphia Phillies used to play in the early 1900s up until 1933. I mean, I mean, there was there, there was collapses in the stadium that resulted in deaths. Is that what the Chicago Cubs and Major League Baseball wants to see? Now, you know, just because we got Wrigley Field in its original form the way it's been, you know, do you have to risk people's lives there? Absolutely not. And and I think the the fact that they're looking to do renovations to the stadium and may renovate to a point where they're going to interfere with the historical value of Wrigley Field, I think you absolutely have to do it. And in my opinion, I think it's something silly if you're going to question it because... You know how how do you how do you crit, how how do you go against something that is is uh, certainly in favor of safety for the people that go to the ballpark? So I think you have to take that historical perspective that you have, that hopes and aspirations that the stuff's going to be so real and so old. And you look at the history of Wrigley Field, and you, you know what? If you're not going to replace the stadium and build a new one, it's time to renovate it to a point where the fans can come in there and feel safe. Once again, it's John Pielli, Passball Show and TR Radio Network, reminding you next Thursday to be live over at Hooters, where I'll be doing my show from 5 to 7. And then we got the MTR Radio 
Real Personalities joining me for the NFL Draft Party, where you're going to get in-depth analysis of everything that's going on with the NFL and the NFL Draft. You got a favorite team, uh, tune in to MTR to figure out what kind of player they're going to draft or what they're going to do to upgrade until next season. But moving forward, I had the opportunity and I was very happy to to uh, get a chance to see the Jackie Robinson movie last week and you know in my in my opinion I thought this was a very good movie not not just from the theatrical standpoint where where the actors did their job and obviously they did the guy that played uh, the Jackie Robinson did a phenomenal job but Brand, uh, Harrison Ford uh, you know Chase Bozeman who played uh, played Jackie Robinson did a phenomenal job uh, you know they, you know they, they 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 did a good job doing the parts that they were supposed to and from the theatrical standpoint of course you know it, it drew the people in there and got to a point where you know it wasn't just a movie about baseball it was a movie with things going on a bunch of uh you know spin, spinning heads and stuff like that and i think that was great from that standpoint obviously the part that i'm going to be the most uh critical of i'm going to be the most you know demonstrative about was the historical value of it because obviously you follow me you know that i know my baseball history in fact within a couple of uh, about about three four months ago, I wrote a story about the 1941 Dodgers. So you know, it's kind of talking about the change from the players in from the 41 Dodgers that went to the World Series against the New York Yankees and Mickey Owen dropped the ball in Game One, or I'm sorry, in Game Four, which the Yankees won in five. <laughs> Two to 47 Dodgers, which obviously went back to the World Series and lost to the New York Yankees again. And obviously, Jackie Robinson had, had his uh, had had his problems getting into Major League Baseball because you know nobody wanted to see a black man in the major leagues. You saw all the Jim Crow laws and the ridiculous things that were going on. And obviously, you're talking about the new century now, uh, the 21st century, where you know this, this stuff is supposed to be behind us. And then you go back and realize how nasty people were there. And how how unfair and unprofessional they acted towards uh, uh, people people of uh, the African American race, and uh, you know you look from from what happened at the beginning of the season to Branch Rickey kind of picking Jackie Robinson to be that guy to be that African American player to break the color barrier. I think one thing that a lot of people forget because I think people want to glorify what Branch Rickey did and say, hey, that's a phenomenal job. That you know it must mean that Branch Rickey really had a feeling and respected, you know, African American players and he did. He did to a certain extent, but not to the way that it was made out to be. And I do think that's my first issue with the production of the movie is Branch Rickey kind of comes out to try to try to look like he's the hero. He's the only one that wants uh, black players on his team when nobody else would do it. The bottom line is he did it for money. He did it because of the research that he had when he realized that a, that an African American player can do just as much if not more than a white player then you know he he went he went with it and said hey, listen I want a player like that on my team and but but not not just for the color issue it was because of the opportunity to have the best team possible and if you have the best team possible you draw the most revenue and it's all about money and you and you look at everything that happened in the movie and you saw Branch Rickey wanting to do this for a money reason not for a civil rights reason which it ended up becoming of course obviously Jackie Robinson playing Major League Baseball was the first step 
step in all the civil rights movements, which later on happened in the 50s and the 60s. But it was not started because that's what Branch Rickey wanted. It was started because Branch Rickey wanted to have an advantage. He wanted to tap from a pool of players that nobody else was even considering. And if he could bring a guy in that could help his team that much, he didn't care what he looked like. And then he, he asked Leo DeRocher what he thinks. And Leo DeRocher says, listen, I don't care. I just want to win. And that's what it comes down to. You know, the fact that this this team from Branch Rickey to Leo DeRocher down wanted to just win. And, of course, bringing Jackie Robinson into an environment which was not conducive to, to having an African-American ball player led to its share of problems. You got Dixie Walker in the petition. You got uh, the manager of the Philadelphia Phillies, Ben Chapman, you know, yelling racial slurs at him when he comes up to bat. I do think that was over-dramatized a little bit, but, you know, it stands out. You know, you get all the different things that this guy has to go through, but you see what happens, and, and in real life, you know, Jackie Robinson winning the first Rookie of the Year award in 1947, becoming one of the top players on that team and leading them to the National League pennant is all things that have happened. One thing I did miss, and, I, and, and like I said, I like to be on my history. You know, if you know me, you know I like to, to read up. I like to know what's going on. Uh, Kirby Higby, the right-hand pitcher who was known for his 22-9 uh, and nine season in the 1941 year, uh, you know, of course, when the Dodgers won the National League pennant, ends up getting traded within about four starts into that season. And I knew that happened. I knew he got traded, but the, the movie portrays him to actually have some issues with Robinson, and that being led to the reason why Kirby Higby is traded to the Pittsburgh Pirates. I missed that, and I actually apologize. I mean, I, sh- I should have been on top of that, understanding that, hey, Higby was there. He didn't, he didn't want to be there when Robinson was there, and they traded him. And uh, the same thing could have happened with Dixie Walker and obviously happened the next year when he was traded to the Pirates. And, uh, you know, there's another player that stands out and says, listen, I don't want to play with him. Comes back a couple weeks later, says, listen, I want this guy on my team. So, you know, you know, he obviously got the Hollywood aspect. He got the, you know, the part of uh, – the, the part of, uh, you know, the, the game where, uh, you know, you want to make sure the movie is more entertainable to people that are not baseball fans. You want to draw people that aren't baseball fans to go and see this motion picture. And, and, and I think they did a good job with it. I do think one mistake that they made, and, and I, I think it was more of an oversight than a mistake because they knew the history as well as I did. When it came down to Leo DeRocher getting suspended in the first part of the season, Leo DeRocher was suspended because of his association with gamblers and gambling. If, if you watch the movie, if you don't know your history, if you're watching it for the first time, you'll think that Leo DeRocher got suspended for committing adultery. And listen, adultery is bad. No, don't get me wrong. I'm not advocating it. But to, to suspend a guy for the entire season for committing adultery is a little silly, especially everything that's going on with racism and stuff in, in the country, having it being totally okay to segregate and be so nasty to people of a different race. Uh, the fact that, you know, a guy cheating on his wife and listen, it's wrong. Don't get me wrong. I don't, I, don't, I don't advocate it at all. But that was not enough to have the guy suspended for a whole season. And if you watch the movie, you see DeRocher laying in bed with the other woman and Branch Rickey saying, hey, I asked him if it was worth it. You know, you get the impression that the suspension from Major League Baseball and Commissioner Happy Chandler was given because of adultery. It obviously wasn't. He was associated with gamblers. He was associated with organized crime. And let's be honest, I mean, how far are you removed from the 1919 Black Sox scandal you're talking 30 years 28 years ago you had the 1919 black Sox. this is 1947 it's not 2013 
You know, so you're talking about uh, everything going on with gamblers. And, uh, of course, Kendershaw Mountain Landis finally uh, gave up being commissioner. And you know how much of an advocate he was to keep gambling out of the game and ban players that were not doing things the right way when it came to betting on baseball. But DeRocher was associated with gamblers. Happy Chandler had to suspend him. Of course, that, that adds to the movie element at the beginning of the season. DeRocher, a guy who certainly uh, w- was on board with Robinson coming along, all of a sudden you find out is not here and you know you have to talk uh Bert Schotten out of retirement a guy who was was done managing and he comes back and he takes over the team you know ends up wearing uh you know the the the, the regular plain clothes because he tells his wife he tells his wife I'll never put on a baseball uniform again and he kind of he kind of you know Branch Rickey makes the comment well uh, who says you have to wear a uniform just come into the dugout you know Connie Mack wore a suit and you know wears a, a suit and tie every day so I, I did think that that was you know maybe maybe dramatized a little bit but you know Bert Schott ends up coming over managing that team but I, I thought overall it was a phenomenal movie and I did I do have a lot of respect for everything that happened with it I enjoy what what it what happened it was really enjoyable to watch but um, you know you check it out 42 of course a great great job by the uh, by the production staff and everything with that movie and if you're a baseball fan you should absolutely love to see it but uh, we're going to touch up on a couple quick things before I go. Number one, Jackie Robinson Day, of course, April 15th. Every, everything involved in that, all the players wear number 42. My issue with it is this. 2004, you started Jackie Robinson Day. This was obviously the 10th anniversary of 2004 when Bud Selig made it Jackie Robinson Day every single April 15th. What happened before that? You know, I understand, you know, it took baseball some time. I I wouldn't expect baseball to all of a sudden acknowledge Jackie Robinson Day in the 60s, maybe even in the 70s. But what about the 1980s and 1990s? I mean, you saw a certain era of, of everything that went by. The 25th anniversary of, of Jackie Robinson playing uh, playing in Major League Baseball was 1972. He ends up dying a year later of a heart attack. Uh, you know, where where is Major League Baseball coming at that time to acknowledge Jackie Robinson? Obviously, you can't make up for lost time. All you could do is say, hey, we're doing the right thing now but what happened before that's the problem I have you wait so long to acknowledge Jackie Robinson to retire as number 42 in all the all all the stadiums to have all the players wear number 42 on April 15th but how come this didn't happen 20 years ago how come this happened 30 years ago I mean Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in Major League Baseball in 1947 why did it take so long that's the issue that I have with that so you know moving forward I'm going to talk a little bit about the Phillies I you know we got some Mets talk we got some Yankees talk in there of course we're going to touch a little bit about the Philadelphia Phillies on the AMTR radio network and you know obviously the concerns are going to start to come out there about Roy Halladay and his velocity and you know his first couple starts didn't look so good but here's a guy that listen you know wasn't his best in spring training was maybe held back a little bit and you, you look at pitchers that haven't had that problem they haven't had the velocity issues maybe maybe it's a fact that they're not in the best shape maybe it's that hey the arm's a little tired it's not always the worst that we all assume we all assume that a pitcher that loses velocity is only because they're hurt 
I think you got to let some time go by. Let let some baseball play for a little while. Let's see Roy Halladay for another month or two before we start to jump to any conclusions about the condition of his arm and whether he's hurt or whether he's done pitching. You know he's throwing a lot of innings. I think we all want to look at the possibility that, yeah, hey, you throw 1,000, you throw 1,500, 2,000 innings, and then all of a sudden, you know, everything kind of falls apart. And you look, Halliday has been lucky enough to not run into too many major injuries throughout the course of his career. Of course, he was hurt last season. I, th- I do think that that has something to do with it. And you move forward, and you just want to see what happens over the next couple of months before you jump to any distinct and crazy conclusions. So, listen, I do want to thank everybody for joining in. I touched up on a lot of different things. Mets, Yankees, Phillies, 42. Uh, make sure you check us out next Thursday, which would be the uh, what, what are we talking about? The 24th? Yeah, 24th, 25th. No, 25th of of uh, April. We'll be down there at the Hooters of Princeton. Passball show will be live from 5 to 7. Got a couple of guests lined up after that. Of course, we'll be joined by the rest of the personalities for MTR Radio, and we'll do the draft party, the whole thing. So hope to see you there. Thanks for having some time today. Once again, it's John Pielli, Passball Show, M. TR Radio Network.